Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Make no mistake, if you're an author, you're an entrepreneur. You're selling the world on your book, aren't you? Of course, it's not as easy as launching a business and then tossing any old book up on Amazon. That's why I help entrepreneurs publish books on the specific topic and in the specific way that will launch or grow their businesses. Welcome to Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with your professor, Anna David. Well, hello there. You are listening to Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with your host and professor, Anna David. You know what we do here. We talk about books and how to make them successful and how to build businesses from them. And Today, I have a guest. Oh, this is a good one. We get into it in the episode, but it's kind of a hilarious story about how we met. The moral possibly being that if you have an email service provider that allows you to take back an email after you've sent it, I probably, I do have that service, but I didn't choose to use it in this case, and I should have. Anyway, Rob Fitzpatrick, he's the author of several books, but the one that we talk about in this episode is called Write Useful Books, A Modern Approach to Designing and Refining Recommendable Nonfiction. So normally I would say, really, one book, one short book can tell you uh, how to write a book that everybody's going to recommend. It actually can, thereby proving his thesis that you have to write the most recommendable book on the topic. And um, it's all about uh, creating a book that's DEEP, which stands for the acronym for Desirable, Effective, Engaging, and Polished. He talks about how to do it. And, you know, the results, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Please don't write a cliche in your book, but I'm allowed to say it. His monthly earnings from his books are around $25,000 a month, which is around... more than most authors. So you want the show notes because it has links to not just where you can find out more about Rob, but more about this book and more about a software he's created that can um, help you do the same. So go to LegacyLaunchpadPub.com slash blog slash Rob. And now I give you Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've been I've been looking forward to chatting. I've been a, a fan of your podcast for a while, ever since you did the Chris Voss interview, which was amazing. Okay, so let's talk about this. This is the best story uh, <laughs> for how I found this podcast guest. So Rob has written an incredible book, arguably the, the best book I've read about writing books, and I've written a book. <laughs> And um, it's called Write Useful Books, A Modern Approach to Designing and Refining Recommendable Nonfiction. So this book came to my attention because my mentor, Joe Polish. And do you know who Joe is, by the way, Rob? 
I, after you, you made the connection, I, I dug into him as well. Yeah. And he's putting a ton of value out into the world also. Yeah. So Joe, uh, texts me, I've written a couple books with Joe and he has a book that is going to be coming out from Hay House. And he texts me and he goes, Oh my God, I found the book. Uh, and I want to rewrite my book. And like, he took it really (laughs) far and, um, said, you have to go buy this right now. He started, and this is just very Joe started telling everybody about it, sent it to the (laughs) house editor. So he's going all crazy. So I go, okay. It's almost like the recommendation loop is a thing, right? You you like find these problems, you find these moments and you you build the whole book around, you know, it's like that moment. Like that's the starting point of every book. It's like, when does someone recommend this? You know, and I, and I'm so happy to, to hear that it worked out that way for you. I mean, and so this is Rob's entire concept. So we have it in action. It's super meta. So Joe says this to me, I order the book. It's a really, um, I'm a big fan of uh, shorter books right now. So I, re- mm-hmm. I find it really approachable. I also recommend five books a month on a TV show. And so I can't, I physically do not have the time to read. Anyway, I'm talking too much, but- but this is such a good story. And I wrote about it in my newsletter. If you don't subscribe, got it. And so I'm reading this book. I'm in the path and I'm reading and it says, you know, as Chris Voss said on this podcast interview, I'm like, this sounds really familiar. I've read a lot <laughs> that Chris has said. And then I go, this is, sounds very familiar. And I had to go to my transcript to confirm that this was from my interview with Chris. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm a hothead and I move too fast. And so I immediately and <laughs> contact information, very accessible. So I have his contact information. I shoot off an email. It's just, and it wasn't nasty. No, no, no. It was subtly nasty. <laughs> somebody who purports to support other writers. Why would you not credit me? And um, then I call Joe and I'm like, you're not going to believe this, this book you've been <laughs> recommending. And he goes, oh my God, I didn't see that. What page is it on? I look to the bottom of the page and there I see a footnote that says, this is from uh, Anna David's brilliant <laughs> interview with Chris. So I panic, I send chagrin, I send another email and then I spend two days going, oh my God. I'm not going to this guy. I feel so bad. And then you wrote me this very kind email. So thank you so much. Long way of saying thank you for being here. So I, I feel like email is just like, uh, I feel like half the time I'm using email, I'm, I'm, I'm like walking through some sort of, you know, minefield of potential mistakes or actual mistakes that I'm, I'm making. I don't know, whatever. And then there's all this pressure to be efficient with email, right? And it's like, you want to get it done so you can get back to your writing or get back to your business. But then it's like, is, I don't know, whatever. I get it. I've done way, way sillier things. But then also when I saw your first message, I was worried because uh, when I do references, I like to leave them in the main body text, but my editor really likes to move them down to footnotes. And you know, when things are going back and forth between writer and editor, it's like, that's a very easy, like copy paste thing for it to just get disappeared. And so for, at first I was like, oh man, did I like clip out the credits uh, uh, somewhere in there? But you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, here we are. So what is on your mind? Let's talk books. Yeah. So, so I got so much, you know, and I've written eight books and I published dozens more. And there are things in this book that I had, uh, uh, had not occurred to me or I had never implemented. So I want to talk about well, what, wh- how would you, how would you talk about um, what is in this book? Uh, the biggest thing is to, um, so this is not about all books. There's like, I, I think one of the confusing things about the book in the publishing market is that there's a lot of products that all look like books, 
but there's actually multiple product categories there. And they play by very different rules for, for marketing, for pricing, for positioning. And I don't know the stats, but it's something like 90% fiction, 10% nonfiction. And then even within fiction, a lot of that is stuff like biography or historical or like a narrative nonfiction. And, and so I, I'm just making up a number here, but say like more than 90% is, is like fiction or narrative nonfiction. And so, of course, the advice that we hear when people talk about books and writing, it's going to be about that big majority. Um, and for a lot of books, stuff like I call them problem solvers or useful books. But the idea is people pick them up not because they want a fun story or, or to be entertained. They pick them up because they're like, man, I, I'm trying to hire people to work in my cafe and I keep having to fire them because like something's going wrong. Or, or, or they're saying like, hey, I, I want to switch from my job to freelancing, but I don't know how to do that safely. Um these can be the prescriptive nonfiction, like the how-tos and the skill building, but it can go broader. Like people pick up a philosophy book because they're stressed out. Like they're like, oh, I'm stressed. I can't deal with work right now. So they pick up something about stoicism or the Tao Te Ching or whatever. So that's like a moment in their life where they have a problem and they're looking for a solution and the solution happens to be book-shaped. But they could go to other places as well. They could go to a friend, a psychiatrist. They could you know, watch a movie. They could go buy some tech product or app or whatever. Anyway, those books behave completely differently from what I call like the pleasure givers, uh, which is like narrative nonfiction and, and, and fiction. And I, I think you build these like problem solvers much more like you would build a traditional tech tech product, like technology product or a service business where you go, you don't start from the artist mindset. You start from, well, first there's the belief that you have something to say, of course. You're like, I think I have something to say that's valuable to the world or valuable to some slice of people. But after that, it's like, you don't go into the tank and write beautiful words for six months. What you do is you go try to find one of those people and try to help them. Try to see if the knowledge that's in your head can actually deliver the results you're talking about. Uh, like the example I love to use is chess books because like you can really quantify this. In theory, every time I read a book about chess, I should see if the book worked. I should see my rating go up, but it never does. So that's clearly somehow like, I know the author is much better at chess than me. I know I'm spending the time and studying seriously, but somehow their knowledge isn't getting from their head to the book to my head. I'm not able to action it. Uh, and people don't recommend it, this type of book, unless it actually works for them. Like when it has to let you see something differently, do something differently, feel something differently, and like ideally quickly. Because like uh, when you got the recommendation from from Joe, he's like, oh, wow, I'm going to do something different with my book. It's like that's the moment where the value clicks. And so then you can reverse engineer that. If you're familiar with like website funnels, you're basically like, okay, landing page, sign up flow, payment page. Like at each of those, you're going to lose a percentage of your readers. I think the same is true for every page in your book or every chapter in your book. So when you're doing your beta reading, you're not trying to say, please get to the end and give me feedback. You're trying to say like, here it is. I don't care. I'm just going to watch you. And then you're like, wow, everyone's giving up in chapter three. What's going on around there? And then you can sort of debug it because you need people to get far enough through the book to receive the value. And you need that value to be able to apply to their life. And then their life needs to have a place where they're, they care enough about the issue, right? So this is all the same like customer research stuff that you do for any other technology product or business. It's just people don't do it for books, not because they don't know how, but because they're thinking of it as a novel which isn't true for most of these business books or, or skill building books or personal branding books or anything like this. Sorry, that was like an hour long answer to a very simple question, but. <laughs> it was a problem is I had about 65 thoughts that I, and I, I will forget 64. Of them. <laughs> First of all, I never knew that statistic about 10% being nonfiction. Um, 
it's interesting because my first book, I made a novel and I always felt like it would have been more successful as nonfiction. And, and in a way, it's like the riches are in the niches idea. It probably would have been. Hmm. Um, who knows? You know, and it, it's also possible that I'm completely flubbing that stat. And also I found that I found that book industry stats are so hard to pin down also because you get like one set of compelling looking stats and it's like only America, only traditionally published. Then you get another one and it's like global, but only this segment. And it's like, it, it's actually pretty, I don't know. I guess that's why we need people like you to keep us on the straight and narrow. That's <laughs> like you who are doing quantifiable research because, hmm. you know, coming from traditional publishing, they don't tell you anything. And even BookScan, which is too expensive for most people to, you know, have an account for, isn't reliable. It's all it's all chaos, which is why this is so important. So <sighs> so but I think we can definitely agree that there are more there's more fiction than nonfiction and there's more and, advice about writing fiction than nonfiction. Yeah, that, that latter bit, a million percent. And it's so aspirational, the idea of going away and just being an artist for a year or two and like coming out with this masterpiece. There, there's something so compelling about that. And to say like, no, you should go get a uh, beta reader feedback. Well, it's still kind of weird. And like, even before then, you should probably try teaching what you're going to be writing about to a real live person, you know, and then check in with them a week later and see if they've actually done anything with it. Because another common mistake is books that feel great to read in the moment. You're like, oh, it's so smart. It's so cool. It's so clever. <laughs> and, and then you, you check in with your reader two weeks later and you go, hey, you try any of this stuff? They go, I did not. It's like, whoa, okay. I mean, that's clearly my fault as an author because I failed to make the next steps clear or compelling. Or they go, yeah, I tried it. I kind of got stuck on this. So I gave up. And you go, oh, again, yeah, that's my fault as an author. And I see a lot of authors uh, pushing the, the burden of success onto the readers. Where, where they go, come on, pay more attention, work harder, study harder. It's all in there. And it's like, yeah, you can do that. You're morally justified to do that, but your book's not going to succeed. Like <laughs> it's got to work for the readers, you know? So interesting. I mean, I, okay. So here's, here's what I found most interesting. I am somebody who, who definitely makes a great effort for me and all my authors that I publish to have advanced reader teams, which is very different hmm. than a beta reader. Hmm. Um, an advanced reader. How, how would you describe the, the key difference or how to use them differently? They're not giving feedback on the content. Oh. <laughs> They're just saying yes, no, thumbs up, thumbs down, like a gladiatorial arena. <laughs> thumbs up because we are saying, Here's the book ahead of time. You are a fan of this author and you mm. will review it. Um, and, you know, you don't have to review it positively, but but like they mm. do. And um, and what that does is, you know, it makes it often number one in multiple categories and all of these things. But but subscribing to your philosophy, if those beta readers are not reviewing the book, it doesn't matter. I'm putting words in your mouth because the book is so good and so useful that it will attract those hmm. from people who do not know the author. Would you say that's true? Yeah. So my, my whole view, so I, I was looking at books, right. And, and the, the problem with books as a, as a product category is that uh, they're low cost. You don't have a lot of pricing power. Like if your book is worth $3,000 to someone's life, you don't get to charge $3,000. Like, right. You have to charge book prices. Uh, so it's low cost. It's undifferentiated. There's there's a ton of supply. There's like a million new titles per year. There's it, it's a very difficult industry for a lot of reasons. And you have no customer relationship because Amazon arbitrage is that away from you. And so you're trading either customer relationship or scale. It's like it's got all these terrible business model dynamics. And so I'm looking at that. And I'm like, how do books succeed? And I, I the methods I saw was uh, like 
somehow create and ride a PR wave. And I looked at this where you like, you, you catch the moment. Uh, this happened with uh, Sheryl Sandberg with Lean In, where she and the business and the book, it was like, and she had the skill and the team to sort of like build, build, build and ride that wave. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't think I could. And even if I could, I still would be pretty miserable. And then a second way is the big author platform. The problem for me with the author platform, so author platforms clearly work. You should definitely build an author platform. But for me, the problem is my interests change. And as soon as I've written a book about a topic, I never want to think about that topic again. Because I'm like, I wanted to figure it out. Now I figured it out. I'm done with it. And so for me, how do you build an author platform when you keep like my books have been about <laughs> startups, education design, and nonfiction. It's just like there, there's like one person out there who likes all three, but it's pretty uncommon. So that made the author platform hard for me. And I don't want to blog cynically just to keep an audience going. I want to blog about stuff I really am excited about. Then I'm like, okay, how, can you do it just with the book? Um, and so I had this theory originally about uh, it was recommendations through teachers, which was kind of like the thesis of the mom test. My, my book about startups was that it would be given out by startup mentors and startup advisors. And they'd be like, I don't want to have to explain this to you. Read this book instead. And it was like one super, super niche problem, basically sales for technical introverts. And it turned out that that recommendation like concept or hypothesis worked, but it worked a lot more broadly. And, and so it was just going reader to reader to reader. And it's called the mom test. And the cover's bright pink because I didn't think that anyone would ever discover it organically. I thought it would be 100% word of mouth. And so I was like, it doesn't matter what it's called, as long as it's kind of like a metaphor I use about moms being uns, uh, giving unsupport, yeah, unconditional love and like unconditional support. So the idea is they're very biased in a positive way. So it's like, uh, anyway, uh, which many customers are also and your review readers, right? Everyone goes thumbs up, thumbs up. So it's like, how, how do you navigate around that unconditional support? Um, so it turned out to be true and, and, and more generalizable. And so then I did that much more intentionally with my second book and then the third book. And, and yeah, it, it, it works, but it's hard. But you see the early signals in like beta reading. So what I look for is during beta reading, I want to see, I keep iterating. So I usually start at like second or third draft for at least like part of the book. So it's coherent, but not beautiful. Uh, and I'm looking for where people give up. Um, I'm looking for where they get confused. We built this software, help this book where they're just like confused, boring, slow, useful, whatever. Um, so that gives more like volume of feedback and it's a little bit big picture. We make it really hard to tell us about typos because we don't want typos. Uh, and at that stage, right? You deal with typos later. And then I, I, I want to see that most people are mostly getting to the end. And I really love to see when they email me a week later, I email them, they go, hey, I use this. This is what happened. Like I use, it, I use this idea. Let me do this. Um, sometimes I'll adopt a couple readers, like adopt in air quotes, where I'll say like, hey, you seem to really care about this. Like, I want to be your free coach and just like help you really develop this skill. And so then that's like a super reader who I know is willing to invest the time and really try to apply the book's ideas. And I become their like free coach. And often those case studies end up back in the book. Like for my, uh, my workshop book, we took a couple people and got them from like not being able to charge for workshops to being able to charge about 2,000 pounds, $3,000 a day. And we just trained them up through that. And we're like, okay, we've, we've done it with those people, fine. And then the others were like the gentler beta reader experience. So I combine all these different types of feedback. And, and, and you should know well before publication if your book is going to succeed or not. And I actually wrote five other manuscripts that I threw away at various stages through the writing process because I realized that they were going to fail as products because I wasn't getting the pre-launch signals that I needed from beta readers and, and I thought like, why launch a book that has no recommendation loop or why launch a book that people aren't able to apply? 
to their work and their lives. Like that's just a waste of everyone's time. So I, I just threw those away. And on hand, that seems like a lot of wasted work. But on the other hand, it's way better to find it out early than in your Amazon reviews, right? Well, as somebody who's written many books that have been ignored, I, I find it, uh, it sounds like very useful advice. One thing I wanted to, this, you said this early on in that answer, why have a title and cover that could also attract people who haven't had it recommended to them? There's no reason not to. Yeah. And I, I've now come around to that way of thinking. Okay. And I completely agree with you now. That was just a case of like, I, I did something weird and random for my first book. And like, I, I kind of got lucky. That book sold 100,000 copies now. And it's taught at all the major universities like Harvard, MIT, everywhere. Um, and it's still goofy, but apparently professors like it because it's goofy. Like it takes two hours to read. Uh, students don't mind it. There's there's nothing academic. It's like silly stories, silly examples. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. And they're like, wow, a business book. And But it also works. Like you can't be just goofy. Like I, I've read some books that are just like, they, the, the author thinks they're supposed to be a clown. And it's like, no, no, no. You're supposed to deliver something useful first. But then, you know, if you can also wrap a little bit, uh, you know, make it easier, make it more pleasant, that's a bonus. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think Write Useful Books or the Workshop Survival Guide, like much better titles than the Mom Test <laughs> overall. Uh, and also the Mom Test has a really suboptimal uh, cover because like most people will see your book on Amazon as a little thumbnail, like 200 pixels high or something. Yeah. It, it's not legible what the Mom Test is about or what it is. It honestly has zero organic discovery, but the, the recommendation loop strong enough. Whereas with the newer books, I try to do both. Change the cover. Definitely, definitely. Um, this that? is just it's another. Working. It's working. It, so you know, find the next. <laughs> and yeah, it's another case where I, I just like once I finish it, I'm just like I don't want to think about that anymore. I will do it. It's coming up on ten years now, and I'm I'm planning to do like a ten year updated edition because a lot has changed in the last ten years with with how these like tasks are done. Um, but I, I don't know. Like the whole reason I got into writing was to 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 pull on threads I was curious about. So at a certain point, it's like, yeah, I want it to work. And when the books first come out, it's not like you can do zero marketing. So I, I call it seed marketing. So because if, if you haven't planted a seed audience, who's going to recommend it? And for me, with uh, the first book, I, I drew an arbitrary line in the sand. And I said, like, I'm going to try to get it to at least 500 people. I ended up getting it to 800. And then I was like, okay, now the book will either succeed or fail on its own merits. With uh, Write Useful Books, we, we've also got like the software and uh, author's community and some other stuff on top of it. So we've continued to market that. And so that we just kept going. And that was growing about, I don't know, 12 times faster than the than, than mom test did. So I, I'd expect that it, you know, has a, a good future. And it's been nine months. Normally uh, books peak within the first three months. And if they're, and that's about like three months is about where you can see if they're going to become back catalog relevant and evergreen, or if they're going to gonna fade because they were only getting sold off the author platform in the PR. So I tend to ignore the, the analytics for the first three months. And then I'm like, <gasps> you know, and at six months, I'm like, okay, this is, it, it's working in the back catalog. It's working with the recommendation loop. And yeah, now, now it seems like that one is. Where do you sell besides Amazon? Um, we do all the normal, like, I don't, I don't think we're very optimal on this. We do, uh, like Ingram spark or draft to digital for the broader kind of non Amazon bookstore distribution. Um, I'm looking seriously into offering stuff through, uh, Lulu press and Shopify. Um, maybe not exclusively cause I get a lot of uplift from the, the, the Amazon flywheel, but, uh, I, the, the, the argument for doing, I mean, I, and I know, you know, all this, but like, it's like how valuable is the reader relationship to you? And if you have more of a business on top of the book, then it makes sense to sacrifice Amazon scale to get, you know, 
more people's emails because uh, then you can build the relationship and deliver value. Um, we don't have that much for like my first two books. The book was the business. Uh, now the book is like the third book's like part of a business. So it might make more sense to worry about those things, but that's why we have the community. Like people read the book. Some of them join the community. Some of them use the software. Um, I try not to be too heavy handed with the promotion, but it's like, it's always touchy. And occasionally someone sends me a mean email and goes, Oh, it's this whole book's just an ad. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, I got to, got to talk about what I know. <laughs> so, so how do you find beta readers? Anna here. Now, are you an entrepreneur who wants to write and publish a book about your own failures turned successes? Well, good news. That's what my company, Legacy Launchpad, does. Find out more at LegacyLaunchpadPub.com. That's LegacyLaunchpadPub.com. Now, should you do a book, you ask? I think so. Why? Because you're worth it. Now, back to the show. Um, the earliest readers. Uh, so one approach I like to use is I, I, I see people stop themselves because they're, they're thinking too high scale too soon. So I normally end up with a few hundred beta readers, but they start one at a time. So what I did for uh, my fourth book, which I'm working on now is I was like, oh, I hate this draft. Like, this is not good. I'm not happy with this. I, I have no idea. I had massive imposter syndrome block because I, I was trying to like, I'm trying to learn about community and I still haven't figured it out at all, but I was basically like documenting what I was learning as I went. So it was different because it wasn't something I knew how to do. It's something I'm currently trying to learn how to do. So I was like, eh, I don't, I don't want to send this out. It's like, I'm so uncertain about all of this. I was like, but I need the feedback. Otherwise I'm going to waste two years, you know, being in mad scientist writer mode. So I said, okay, for the next two weeks, I'm going to invite one person per day manually through email. That was it. So each day I would wake up and I'd go like, okay, what's one person who I can think of who this is relevant to? Um, and I, I sent them a personal note. And often it was really nice because it was an excuse to catch up with people in my like broader network who I hadn't caught up with in a while. It's like, hey, I remember a couple of years ago, you said something about this. It's like, I'm working on this thing, no pressure, but if it's relevant. And out of those first, I did that for two weeks. So that was 14. Out of those first 14, I, I think about four or five people. I usually see about a 25% uh, conversion between the people who say they want to and should want to versus the people who actually do because, you know, reading a, a book high, takes forever. That's a high conversion rate usually. Right. <laughs> yeah. And this is when I'm very targeted. This is like 25% after they've told me they want to. <laughs> uh, so that was like the first four or five uh, who kind of read through everything and... Um, I think at that point, I only had the first 6,000 words down. I got this idea from Marty Kagan. He said that you should take the book's like most important, most risky core thesis, just write that, 6,000 words, 10,000 words, start beta reading on that, start getting expert reviews on that. Because if the core thesis doesn't hold people's attention and doesn't hold up to their scrutiny, the rest of the book, which is about more standard stuff, it, you know, is, you know, start with the risky bit. So I tried that. That was really fun. Um, the responses from that first group made me a little bit more confident that like, actually, there's something here. So, you know, I rewrote that. It grew to 10,000 words or 12,000 words. Um, and at that point, what I started doing is making little YouTube videos where I would basically, I, and I only started doing the, the YouTube stuff recently. I was basically just responding to reader comments. So whenever a reader asked me a question by email, instead of responding through email, I'd just like go to Loom or Descript or wherever, record a five-minute video answer and, and send it out. Um, so for me, it was the same time cost. And I ended up with like, you know, it, it's starting. It's at a couple thousand people now. And that's like effort I was already going to be doing. So I started basically answering beta reader confusions as videos. 
where it'd be like, hey, like I was trying to say this and I'd have like the manuscript open with the highlight where they're like confused. And I'd basically just like talk through and improvise it for a minute or two. Um, or I might do little stuff on Twitter. It's like, hey, you know, big thanks. Um, April Dunford caused, caused these momentum launches where you use the story of the book's own progress as the story. So, so you go like, hey, we, 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 I got my first hundred comments or hundred feedback things from these first like five amazing readers. Like here are the big things I learned. You can be very self-referential. And it's like, for me, it helps me think. And it also, it's excuses to put, put stuff out there. Um, and basically from there, basically uh, snowballed. And this current one, I honestly don't even know what I'm going to do with it because I'm like so overwhelmed and there's so much work that needs to be done. <laughs> But it's also got so much momentum. I, I've never seen such early recommendation loops at like a beta stage draft. Because I think I probably only invited, after that, I did a bulk invite to another 20 people who told me they wanted it. Um, but somehow like over 100 people have now shown up and left comments and I haven't sent it to anyone else. So that's clearly just like, you know, re readers sending it to readers, which is very encouraging. But right. I, I'm like... Because I leave it public by default, which is also a weird choice. So it, it's up there. You can just go grab it. People can send it. I have like, there's no account system. There's no login. There's no protections. Um, and I'm like, hey, help me out with some feedback. But here it is. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm so unprecious about it. It's like, if you want to steal this idea, you're not going to write it as well as I will. So, <laughs> And if they do, honestly, I, I'd be happy because then I could just read theirs instead of having to do all the hard work of figuring it out. <laughs> is it Google Doc? Is that what you do it on? Uh, I, I use Google Doc for uh, Workshop Survival Guide. And then now we have a thing called um, helpthisbook.com that we, we kind of built. And it's basically, um, it's like Google Doc with less features or fewer features. But the biggest change is that it doesn't give people an open comment field. It gives them these four reactions of like confusing, slow, love this, useful. Um, and we found it gives about... Uh, uh, 10, 10 times as much feedback. Uh, we, we did some uh, quantitative tests uh, where you get about like 10 times more overall uh, comments because they're not required to figure out what to say. And even more importantly, you get way more big picture negative comments. Like the confusings and the slows are super difficult to get off a of Google Doc because if people have to type that into a blank text field, they feel like they're being mean and they don't like to do that. And by giving them a button, and what I like to do is go into my own manuscripts and add a couple negative comments toward the beginning. Uh, it's like, eh, I don't get what you're talking about here. You're a crazy person. Uh, and then people are like, oh, we're supposed to say that. And, you know, it's like a lot of it is like priming and making people feel comfortable. So um, question. Okay. So then do those people eventually tend to review the book? Probably. Or you don't I will. I don't know what the conversion percentage is, but I will say that all of my early reviews for Wub came from beta readers. And what I did also with, with Wub, so uh, Wub's uh, Write Useful Books, the, the, the one you read, um, there's like a, a, a spectrum because you want to start your marketing before launch, ideally, right? Because you, you want to launch with those early 20, 40 reviews, the editorial reviews, et cetera. Um, so I was doing, I'd done pre-sales before, but I wanted to do a, a, like a pure early access. And at a certain point, I, I started with free beta reading because it's like, hey, I don't know if this book works yet. And I also don't know if I'm going to finish it. And I really value the ability to quit. I once pre-sold a book too early before I'd figured out the hard parts. And I ended up canceling it, which was very stressful for me because I couldn't figure out how to make the book work well enough. And then it's like a bunch of uh, apologetic emails and refunds and all that. 
And so this time I, I feel now it's like, I don't want to start charging money un- until the finish line's in sight. Could be six months away, but the risky stuff's done. Uh, and what, then I switched from free beta reading to $24 flat early access, which included the reader's community, uh, access to the ongoing beta draft and the finished book when it was ready. So that was like a one-time price. And we still got about a hundred of those early um, supporters in the author's community. And then as we switched onto the like pre-order launch stage, um, we broke apart the book and the community and the community became a $20 a month, $30 a month thing, you know, just for that. Cause we're like, Hey, we got a hundred great nonfiction authors here. Like we think this is a good little group now. And so now that's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have to interrupt you because you, Hmm. I don't think you take breaths. Um, (laughs) Sorry. My fault. Useful things. Uh, Sorry. Just to clarify, they're paying to be your beta readers essentially. Yeah. So Wub, Wub got about, I want to say $10,000 ahead of time from these, like the early community memberships. And they were also the most enthusiastic beta readers. And some of them were reading multiple versions. Some of them didn't, some of them read one, but that's where all my reviews came from. And then it was really useful for me also because they were, what I did in my early community onboarding, and this was just like uh, me being apologetic because I didn't know how to build a community yet. So the first thing I had them do is like, whenever they join, I'm like, hey, just like, uh, here's a Calendly, set up a one-on-one call with me. And so then people were paying and subscribing it, it, and then basically booking a reader learning call with me. And we, we just talk about their book. Hey, what are you stuck on? What are you thinking about? What worries you? What scares you? And that was while the beta reading was still happening, the, the final stages, which allowed me to catch a bunch of these extra hidden objections and work them into the book. Not everything, of course, like some people still don't like it or feel like I missed stuff, but th- th- that all helped. And then we've kept that community running. So like that's now also a few thousand a month, you know, little part of our business is this like readers community. And so um, they're readers. They are not writers themselves or something. Sorry. Uh, I, well, my readers are authors, but it's yeah. like it's yeah. it's basically people who are trying to follow the right useful books like iterative, data-driven approach to, to nonfiction. Does your software that you guys have or your website, does that uh, help set that up? And how much does that cost? Uh, so that right now, we'll separate them eventually, but right now it's just one subscription. So you get the author's community and the software. And some people join for one and they don't care about the other and they just use one piece, but it's like 20 or 30 bucks and, and, and you get both. Um, and yeah, it, it's all off usefulbooks.com if anyone's curious. So, so could somebody, the idea is that it's a monthly subscription that you hold on to for your multiple books. Like you don't do it just for one book. Well, that was what I was originally thinking. And because I kind of expected a lot of people want help in the, from the community when they're figuring out like, what's the table of contents, the promise, the recommendation loop, all this kind of like early stage planning. And then as they transition into beta reading, there's another point where they want it's like a weird new experience. How do I do this safely and properly? Um, and then there's some tactical marketing stuff that comes at the end. So there's like these three little spikes. And toward the beginning, there's also building the writing habit because not everyone has it. So we do some stuff like it's it's easier to make the time to focus and to not be interrupted if there's other people on a Zoom call with you. Yeah, so we, we set up a book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Group. I don't, Super I don't helpful, right? Team run. Yeah. Um, but I have a question. So wait. So they are each other's beta readers as well. Not always. We don't promise that because uh, they may not be interested. 
Exactly. It, it definitely does happen. It depends a lot on the topic, but we don't guarantee any sort of, we don't do review swapping or beta reader swaps. It, it happens occasionally organically, but it's not really the point. The point's like what you would get from an entrepreneurship group where it's like, am I building this product in the right way? Am I using the data properly? Am I going too slow? Am I focusing on the wrong thing? So it's, it's all these, we actually don't, we, we don't talk about the writing itself very often, apart from making the time and doing the work. Um, yeah. Almost everything is around the product or the business side. Right. Now, okay. Um, so I, I had decided on doing a, a new, a new book. I try to do, you know, sort of one a year, which is probably too much. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. If you're going to use your, I have never been tactical about it. The most hmm. tactical I got was with make your mess, your memoir, which was, which was my book about, about writing it. Um, but, but so I had decided this is also very meta. I wanted to make a book of uh, the best podcast interviews because it's just a wealth of information that. Yeah, absolutely. Want. And so I reached out to, you know, I, I went through hundreds of interviews and I reached out to about 20 and, you know, said, can I use this? And they all said yes. And, um, and then I've been playing around with how am I going to do this structure? Because a book of interviews is not hmm. going to be interesting. That's not going to be compelling because it's not going to be something you can apply. It's like, oh, so, so then, and so then I'm like, oh, and somebody just told me I had, I've never read Neil Strauss's book uh, about where he took his podcast. Um, interview. I know Tim Ferriss did that. Anyway, this is, and so I said, I'm going to, last week I said, I'm going to start doing the Rob thing. And <laughs> I put a thing on LinkedIn, but it was totally perfunctory because I don't really do this yet. So I just yeah. basically wanted to see if it would get anything. I was like, I'm doing this book of podcasts <laughs> and what do y'all think? And, and, you know, I got some, some hmm. response, but is something like what I'm talking about doing, could you even do this system? when the content already exists? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, the So interviews, I agree, are a tricky format. Uh, there's, there's a few that have become like real uh, back catalog classics. There's one in the, or maybe two, in the finance industry uh, called Market Wizards, which has sold a bajillion copies. And it's kind of, it's the book that everyone gets their first day on the job. It's like first day on the job, you got to read this book. And it, it, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's interviews, right? Um, and that is not a normal type of book you would give out. Uh, yeah. But it works because in the finance industry, there's, uh, there's so many different worldviews and so many different approaches that you get a situation where there's no canonical correct answer. And so it's really valuable to hear the approaches of different people who are equally smart, all wrestling with the same problem in different ways. That's a place where the interview format, to me at least, feels very natural because you want the ambiguity. You, like you want the multiple perspectives. It, it benefits from those different voices. Um, in others, I've read other uh, books where I, I felt like the interviews were, were less necessary because I'm like, there is an answer. Like, I would prefer that someone just gave me the answer. You know, it's like, it almost felt like the book hadn't been finished because I hadn't been brought from, uh, but that just depends on the topic. And then some people organize, they split all the interviews apart and they organize them by topic or goal or problem or outcome. Other people leave it person by person. I have no idea what's best. I, I've, I've never done that. But I will say, super fun type of book to create, I'm sure. And it gives you an excuse to talk to a load of really smart people and to dive deeper into, into what they're saying and what they're doing. So in terms of a like relationship building, door opening, like you know something that you can give to clients and, and businesses, 
I'd like I, I love it for all those purposes. I don't see any big downside there. Because what, what you said made me feel good because I think that the, what's interesting about these interviews is everybody's got a different tactic and a different opinion. I'm sure I have had guests that would say what you're saying doesn't make sense or whatever it is. So possibly when you say that sounds like a really fun book to, to put together, I do not think so. <laughs> it would be the most fun to put together if it could just be a series of interviews. I hmm. think it sounds like a puzzle piece that I would not enjoy. Doesn't mean <laughs> um, but yeah. and, and we have a client who wants to do a book like this as well. So that's why I'm very, I always want to try something myself. Yeah. If it works because, and then we can. Yeah. I, I could imagine in, in some cases, this would be very specific to the, what was said in the interviews, but I, I could imagine adding the tactical layer on top of them where it's like at, at the end of it, there's like some of them have worksheets or some of them have the next steps or some of them have like the extension into how this works as a business model or as a, you know, a larger philosophical approach. Like, you know, if, if you put one layer on top of the interviews, um, maybe that's enough. Cause there's also, there's a, a funny dynamic in, in nonfiction books where if the nonfiction book gives tools to consultants and teachers, uh, essentially they don't recommend it to five people. They recommend it to 5,000 and you're essentially giving them a way to, build an edge because they're not coming up with these frameworks. Right? right. But they're, they're hungry. If you can say, here's a new framework or here's a new tool, or here's a new, like nice, clean one, two, three, four, five concepts you can use in your sessions. And then they take, and they, they see that really aggressively for you. If they can wrap a compelling workshop or a consulting session around it. Um, yeah. It's, that's something I would think about if I was writing um, my first book, the business book now, because uh, we, we got a bit of that uplift organically, like they teach in lots of places but it's slower than it should be because each of those teachers is required to figure out their own lesson. Mm. And if I could give them a lesson in a box that was just in the book or a couple lessons for different situations, it spreads much, much faster. Cause then for them, it's like, yeah, this, I, I just saved planning three classes and I, I'm sure you know how long that stuff takes. And, and yeah, they're overworked and underpaid. So uh, <laughs> let's do it for them. Do you, how did you get it? Did it truly organically just get into schools? You did nothing to make that happen? Uh, I had a, one of the beta readers was from, and maybe even stronger than beta readers, let's say early supporters was a professor at UCL, University College London. It's like a top five global university, really good entrepreneurship program. And they just started using it one day. But what had, I think, made them feel comfortable to do that is that I did my seed marketing through that book through um, high profile, but small and very niche industry events. So the first one I did was for uh, startup mentors, not the not startup founders, but the people who mentor are startup founders. And I believe I gave, I was given three minutes, I believe, to explain what the book was about. So I went up on stage and I'm like, oh, it's a pink book. Get it. It's there. There's a big pile of them on the, the pool table. And, you know, I gave like one quick lesson. Um, most of those people didn't read the books, but they started giving them away because I'm like, oh, I think this would be good for you. Or I think this because they had one. They're like, I don't need it. Um, and I think the fact that that conference, uh, I made no money from that. They just paid printing costs. But it meant that 500 startup mentors had a copy of this book. And it was kind of like, and that was all in London. And they're like, so it was like critical mass suddenly with this, this subgroup within one city. And so the first uh, university that picked it up was also in London. And I would imagine that that's the way it had to be because they had to see a few people 
who are credible. A lot of the risk for universities um, is essentially reputational downside. Uh, and and if, if you can make that feel a little bit safer, and then the, the other risk is the, the time, and then the money's solvable. Like I, I still have universities, they just email me and I'm like, I'll make you an invoice and they, they buy copies. And if they buy more than about 250 copies at a time, I'll put their logo on the front and that's it. And, and some of them buy from Amazon, which is crazy to me. I'm like, I'll sell it to you so much cheaper if you just email me. But, uh, you know, you just use a printer. Uh, now we're using Ingram Spark for everything, which is great for all of our bulk orders. So we pay the $50 setup fee. Uh, and that's why we have the volume requirements on the custom branded cover. Because every time you rebrand it, you just pay the $50 again. You know about BookPal? BookPal? I don't know. Is it good? It's just way less expensive for bulk orders. I can connect. Oh, nice. If you want. Yeah. Um, so this has been so fantastic. I'm really, I'm super excited about my book now. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to get your software and join your group. I think it sounds amazing. Um, and may I include this interview in that book? Hey, please, if you think there's anything useful in here, I would be honored. Yes. I mean, you, you guys heard it here. So if he like backs out, I now have many <laughs> witnesses. So uh, what, um, what would you like to leave the listeners with? What's your one bit of advice? You guys just, you should all go get this book. Um, if you, well, I mean, whatever. If you're a fiction writer, I don't know why you'd listen to this podcast. So I really, truly do think you all should go get it. What would you say, Rob? So the, the URL is usefulbooks.com and you can find the, the software, the community and the book, they're all there. Um, but my kind of, the thing I would say is that, uh, closing advice or whatever, is that uh, books are way too big of a project to go into cynically. And it's very wasteful to get halfway into a book and then realize you don't care and that you're either going to half-ass it to the finish line or you're going to give up. Because um, like there's value at every stage, right? You, you want people to want what is promised on the cover. I say deep, like desirable, effective, engaging, polished. And you want to get them mostly in that order. So do people want it? Uh, will they read it far enough to get the value out of it? Uh, you know, does it work for them? That's the effective and engaging. And then the polish is the stuff at the end, right? Polished and professional and pretty. <laughs> and people always skip the most important stuff when they're in a rush. They, they skip spending the time with the readers and they, they skip getting the reader feedback because... That's the bit that's stretchy. That's like the slinky in the middle. And for some of my books, that's been quick because the early versions were like, oh, I was pretty close to correct. And others is like, wow, we are so far away from correct. And it, it takes a bunch of iterations. And when people are in a rush, they just don't want to spend the time there. So they basically go like, uh, well, they want it. Let's make it polished. Uh, and, and they're missing the effective and engaging that, that's supposed to be in the middle. That's like the important bit of the sandwich. So, you know, don't go into it cynically. Doing research what? is not sexy. It's not yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's like emotionally hard too. you know, you, you open up your dashboard and there's like 500 comments telling you how dumb you are. It's like, okay. And it's, uh, one of the things I do is, well, one, I'm also ADHD. So we have a ton of trouble with motivation unless we're like intrinsically motivated. So I'm very choosy about the book topics I choose. It's like, is this something I'll be excited to spend the next year or two thinking about? That's my like main thinking task. Uh, do I care enough about these readers? Do I enjoy hanging out with them that I'm going to be I'm going to enjoy having the conversations and learning about their lives and frustrations. Um, and, and then there's sort of like some, you know, market viability and stuff that sits on top of that. But yeah, I mean, it, if you're curious about it and if you're going to like enjoy serving the readers, then there, there's really no downside, right? Uh, all the downside comes from going into it cynically. Love it. I love it. Um, well, Rob, thank you so much. You guys, uh, thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week and please just go follow everything Rob, Rob, 
does. And <laughs> um, bye guys. Thanks for joining me this week on Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with Anna David. For more info about the show, go to entrepreneurpublishing.academy where you can get links to show notes and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and all the other places. Speaking of those places, if you got anything out of this show, I can't tell you how much I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. And please, don't forget you can tell an author or entrepreneur friend about the show. Another forget-me-not, my company, Legacy Launchpad Publishing, is available to help industry leaders and those with stories to share at any stage in their publishing journeys, whether that's writing, editing, or publishing, just go to LegacyLaunchpadPub.com to find out more. And be sure to tune in next week for well, next week's episode. You know, if you subscribe, you never have to worry about missing one.